Author Larry Crabb once wrote, Many of us place top priority not on becoming Christ-like in the middle of our problems, but on finding happiness. I must firmly and consciously, by an act of my will, reject the goal of becoming happy and adopt the goal of becoming more like the Lord. On the threshold of being betrayed, abandoned, and denied by his closest friends, unjustly arrested, mercilessly tortured, nailed to a Roman cross, and worst of all by far, the focal point of God's own wrath, knowing all of that was not only to be his fate, but imminently so, Jesus said to his disciples, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death, Mark 14, 34. And yet, as we continue to read the story, we find Jesus not only not running away from his fate or trying to change his circumstances, but quite intentionally and purposefully embracing them. Listen, not because that's what made him happy. Obviously, he just said, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. So why then? Why in the world would you willingly pursue something that makes you so utterly unhappy? Well, it's because Jesus' primary goal in life wasn't to be happy. It was to be like the Father, which is exactly what the Father wanted from Jesus. And by the way, it's exactly what he wants from us. You see, despite a lot of what is being taught in churches today, God's greatest desire for you is not for you to be happy. It's for you to be like Christ. In fact, Jesus said as much, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, Matthew 5, 48. In other words, you see what I'm doing. You should be doing the same thing, which means when it comes to choosing happiness or Christ-likeness, which aren't always uh, the same, right? I mean, sometimes they are. Sometimes doing what makes us happy and doing what Jesus would do, sometimes those are the same thing, but sometimes they're not the same. In fact, sometimes those two things couldn't be more different, just like they were different for Jesus when it came time for the cross, and yet he chose to do what the Father wanted him to do instead of what would make him happy in that moment. And yet if we're being honest... How often when we're faced with the choice between doing what makes us happy and doing what makes us more like Christ, when those two things are not the same, how often do we choose happiness? And look, I'll just tell you, the problem with living that way, among other things, is that our focus is constantly on our circumstances and other people's behavior instead of on Christ, because that's where we most often find immediate happiness in favorable circumstances and in behavior by other people that feeds our personal desires. And yet, whereas Christ is immovable and unchanging, our circumstances and other people's behaviors constantly changing, which means our happiness becomes a moving target. Right, which is the very reason why so many Christians feel so unfulfilled, so unsatisfied with their lives, because what makes them feel happy on any given day changes like the weather. So what's the answer then? What, what's the remedy? Do we all just resign ourselves to a life of mediocrity and misery? Well, <laughs> of course not. Not at all. The, the answer 
is to fix our hearts and minds on something far deeper than our feelings, something greater than happiness, something that never changes. You see, if if you want satisfaction, if you want fulfillment in your life that abides, that remains, even when your circumstances change, then your focus has to be on something that abides, on something that remains unchanged, which is why the Apostle Paul said, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. They remain. These three, 1 Corinthians 13, 11 through 13. See, Paul came to understand that even though circumstances constantly change, there is a faith that never falters. There's a hope that never fades, and there is a love that never fails, which can only be found in Christ alone. And listen, this is such a formative truth in our development as disciples of Christ. In fact, this one bit of truth will transform your life overnight if you'll let it. Because instead of thinking to yourself, Uh, You know, once my circumstances change or this other person's behavior changes for the better, then my life will be better, which is exactly how most of us think most of the time. Instead of focusing on what constantly changes, if you will fix your heart and mind on what never changes, regardless of your circumstances or other people's behavior, the faith, hope, and love that is available to you in Christ alone at all times, in every circumstance, no matter what is happening or what other people are doing, when you fix your heart and mind on that, you will experience a satisfaction and fulfillment that is infinitely deeper than the ever fleeting feelings of happiness. And you understand, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not down on happiness and neither is Jesus. We all love to be happy and we should, and that's good. But his word is very clear. On the matter, he says, for everything, there's a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down, a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 4, happiness is great and I'm all for it but happiness is not God's greatest desire for you. What can be found in Christ alone is, which is what Jesus lives out so vividly uh, in this story, as we'll see today as we continue our study through the gospel according to Mark. So let's turn there together and pick the story back up where we left off last week and see how the faith, hope, and love of Christ, in spite of his circumstances how it changed the world, and listen, can change your world if you will let it. Mark chapter 14, we'll begin with verses 43 through 49, where we left off before, which is picking the story back up. You'll remember as Jesus is talking to Peter and James and John in the Garden of Gethsemane about the fact that his hour has now come, and they kept falling asleep, and he was telling them to pray, and he kept waking them up, and he says, look, listen, my hour has come. He's about to be betrayed, as Jesus puts it, into the hands 
of sinners. That's where we're picking the story up. So Mark 14, uh, verses 43 through 49. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the 12, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. We know that servant is Malchus and the one doing the cutting is Peter from the other gospels. And Jesus said to them, have you come out against us uh, against as a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. So Judas gathers a band of soldiers, as the apostle John puts it in his account of this same story. These were Roman soldiers, along with some of the temple police and the chief priests priests and and Pharisees sent with them. In the original uh, Greek language, the band of soldiers is described as a spira, which constituted a Roman cohort or a thousand men. Although in practice at the time, the Roman cohort was typically about six to 700 soldiers. But when you add in the temple police, it is estimated there were in fact about a thousand men with lanterns and torches and weapons sent out to capture one man. Hearing this story as a kid, I always pictured about 15 or 20 soldiers with Judas coming to arrest Jesus. Can you imagine the sight and the sound of this mass of soldiers with torches and lanterns, the metal of their swords and armor clanging together as they approached the garden that evening at night, a thousand strong. It must have been a terrifying sight and sound to behold. Part of the reason they sent so many after Jesus, by the way, is because they weren't just concerned about Jesus and his immediate disciples. At this point, as we've discussed earlier in this chapter, Jesus had become very popular with the masses of people. So there was a fear of an uprising upon his arrest. That's why they're coming out at night as well. And so sending out a thousand soldiers would much better prepare the authorities for any potential mob violence that might occur, which again was always a concern for the Romans during the Passover when, according to uh, the first century Jewish scholar Flavius Josephus, over 2,700,000 people, almost 3 million people crowded into the city. And so a thousand battle-hardened soldiers come seeking to arrest Jesus under the cover of night, led by Judas, one of the 12, as Mark puts it, just to underscore the fact that the betrayal of Jesus came from within his inner circle. And as if that's not bad enough, Judas had arranged ahead of time with the authorities a special sign to identify Jesus to the soldiers, a kiss, which was uh, a profound gesture of honor and affection customarily given by a disciple to their rabbi in ancient Hebraic culture. And it's even worse than that because if you read it in the ancient Greek, that kiss, phileo, was not merely a polite peck on the cheek like a normal greeting. No, this was a lavish and passionate embrace and kiss by Judas. It was a sign of deep devotion and love. And then to make the betrayal that much more painful, not only does Judas address Jesus as rabbi, which means my great one, but several translations tell us that Judas says it twice. Rabbi, rabbi, which was also a Hebraic custom to call out someone's name twice which was so 
deeply meaningful. In that culture, it was rarely ever used. In fact, it only occurs 15 times in all of biblical scripture because it was always and only used to express the very deepest, most profound and passionate longing and cry of the heart from one person to another. When King David learned of the death of his son, the king covered his face and he cried out with a a loud voice, Oh, my son, Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. 2 Samuel 19, 4, at the very moment when Abraham was about to sacrifice his own son, Isaac, on the altar on Mount Moriah, the Lord called out to him, Abraham, Abraham, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you've not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Genesis 22, 11 and 12. And of course, when Jesus was dying on the cross, his heart's cry was, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mark 15, 34. You you get the idea. In ancient Hebraic culture, to call out someone's name twice was reserved for only the most passionate and intensely personal pleas of one's heart toward another. That's exactly what Judas does here with Jesus for the express purpose of having him murdered. The depth of betrayal was staggering as the soldiers laid hands on him and seized him, and yet Jesus doesn't fall to his knees and cry out, why me? He doesn't express regret for having poured his life into these men, including Judas, and he doesn't question his choice to follow God's plan for his life. In fact, just the opposite, as he willingly gives himself over to arrest, pointing out that they could have arrested him any time they wanted to. He simply says, let the scriptures be fulfilled. You see, Jesus was betrayed, but his faith never faltered. Because as bad as the betrayal was, Jesus understood that everything that was happening to him was all a part of God's plan, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. In other words, the father wasn't surprised by what was happening to Jesus. Listen, maybe you need to hear this today because the fact is he's not surprised by what's happening to you either. Yet it gets even better. Because not only is God not surprised by your circumstances, he's also in control of them, just as he was with Jesus's circumstances. Okay, in Matthew's account of this same story, Jesus says to the men arresting him, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Matthew twenty six fifty three and 54. You see, God is not only not surprised by whatever it is you're going through right now, but he's in control of whatever it is you're going through right now. So why do we allow our faith to falter when circumstances or people hurt us, when they betray us? Well, it's because deep down, we don't actually believe that God is in control. We say we believe that, But the way we react to difficult circumstances in our lives often doesn't bear that claim out. The truth of the matter is we often have more faith in what this world can do to us than we do in what God has promised to do for us. Why? Because we don't actually believe God is in control. Likewise, listen, if being betrayed, deeply wounded by another person wrecks your faith in God, 
then whether you want to admit it or not, you've placed more faith in that other person than you have in God. Why? Because you don't truly believe that God is in control. And yet when you look at what was happening to Jesus, the, the depths of hurt, the severity of the betrayal and the consequences of that betrayal to come, and yet Jesus offers no protest other than to point out their hypocrisy. He doesn't shake his fist at God or question God's plan. He doesn't abandon God's people, even though they abandon him, as we'll see, because Jesus knows that the Father is in control, which is why it's so necessary for your faith to be firmly rooted in Christ alone because he alone is in control and he never changes. You see, faith in Christ is a faith that abides. It's a faith that remains. While faith in anything or anyone else is faith in someone or something that is not in control and that is constantly changing. And so it's only natural that when that person or those circumstances that you've put your faith in fails you, well, then so goes your faith which is precisely why so many Christians experience a crisis of faith at some point in their lives, because although they say they believe that God is in control, they're actually not convinced of that. And so they put their faith in other things and in other people. Listen, they put their faith in other things and in other people that make them happy. You understand? This is why we don't always believe that God is in control, because God doesn't always make us happy. Sometimes he allows us to experience circumstances and relationships that make us anything but happy. In fact, sometimes those circumstances and those people even hurt us deeply, just like Judas did with Jesus. And so it goes to reason. How could a loving God be in control when I'm walking through hell in my marriage? when my health is failing, when, when I can't beat this addiction, when I, when I can't stop screwing up, when my life is not turning out how I thought it would, when people don't act like they should, when my world is falling apart, how can God be in control when I have to go through things in my life that make me utterly unhappy? And so we look for things in people that make us happy and we put our faith in that because we fail to recognize that God's primary desire for your life is not for you to be happy. It's for you to be like Jesus. And being like Jesus means experiencing circumstances and people just like he did, circumstances and people that at times will make you very unhappy. Does that mean you can't trust God? Does that mean God is not in control? No, it means we're becoming more and more and more like Jesus through the good times and through the hard times, just like he went through. It's what the apostles later referred to in their writings as sharing in Christ's sufferings. And once you recognize that God is in fact in control, even when other people and other circumstances betray you, just like he was in control when Judas betrayed Jesus, that's when your faith begins to change how you view God because through that faith, you'll see him at work in your life. Listen, even when you've been deeply hurt, by others, and even when your circumstances are anything but good, which is exactly why the Apostle Peter was able to say, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings 
First Peter 4, 12 and 13. Why rejoice in that? Because we're becoming more and more and more like Jesus. 19th century Anglican Bishop J.C. Ryle once said, he that would be conformed to Christ's image and become a Christ-like man must be constantly studying Christ himself. Let's keep reading, verses 50 through 65. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. That's a bad day. And they led Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. He was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. Some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say that I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. As we saw last week back in verse 31, all of the disciples pledged to die with Jesus. And then here in verse 50, on the very same night, they all left him and fled. One young man even apparently ran away naked when they tried to seize him by his linen garment. And although we cannot say for certain who the young man is, it's most commonly believed among scholars that it's none other than John Mark, the author of this gospel, given the fact that this detail uh, is only recorded in Mark's gospel account and also because it was very common at the time for the biblical uh, authors to leave themselves unnamed in their own writings out of modesty. So the point is everyone flees and abandons him. And there's Jesus without a single person to stand with him, taken into custody, listening to one person after another after another bear false witness against him, lying through their teeth to see him wrongly convicted, and then interrogated by the high priest for claiming to be exactly who he was, the Son of God. And then after the hearing, spit upon, mocked, and beaten, fulfilling the scriptures of the servant of Yahweh in Isaiah 55 and 6. And yet when the high priest asks Jesus, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed, the, the, the blessed being a Jewish phrase referring to God. So this is the high priest directly asking Jesus if he is in fact the son of God, knowing good and well what was going to happen to him next. Jesus doesn't simply say yes. He doesn't say, well, yes, but I'm only here to help. He doesn't say, well, yeah, but, you know, if you'll show me mercy, maybe I'll keep it quiet. No. 
Jesus not only doesn't do anything to try and talk his way out of this mock trial, but he responds when asked if he is the son of God, he responds boldly with, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven, which was a crystal clear reference to Daniel 7, which every single man in that courtroom was well familiar with as it describes the chosen one who comes to the throne of the ancient of days, the name that Daniel used to describe God himself. In other words, when the high priest, picture this, the high priest asked Jesus if he's the son of God. Jesus says, you bet I am. I came from heaven and I'm going back to heaven. And by the way, I'm the one who's been appointed judge over this earth, not you, which means the next time you see me, we will be in another courtroom, except on that day, I will be the judge and you will be the one on trial. Is it any wonder? The high priest loses his composure and standing before them in a blind rage, he tears his garments and says, what further witnesses do we need? You've heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? That's nothing short of terrifying without anyone to represent comfort or defend him. Jesus is thrown to the wolves and yet he answers with such boldness, not only concerning his true identity, but his future as well, even as he knows he's about to be beaten and crucified while his disciples hide in the shadows in fear. You see, Jesus was abandoned, but his hope was never lost because his hope wasn't bound up in this world. He understood that in the scheme of eternity, he was just passing through this world, which happens to be passing away. The apostle John said, all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. First John 2, 16 and 17. This world and everything in it is temporary. Christ is eternal. And so between the two, which does it make more sense to hope in? Something that lasts forever or something that can end at any moment? James, the brother of Jesus said, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What, what is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes, James 4.14. Okay, this life on earth is a breath in the backdrop of eternity. And I've shared this quote with you before. It's one of my favorites. A.W. Tozer writes, Life is a short and fevered rehearsal for a concert we cannot stay to give. Just when we appear to have attained some proficiency, we're forced to lay our instruments down. There is simply not enough time to think, to become, to perform what the constitution of our natures indicates we're capable of. I cannot stress enough today the brevity of our life on this earth. And it's not that that this life is unimportant, by the way. On the contrary, the decisions we make in this life affect all of our eternity. And so when it comes to the anchor of the soul, as the author of Hebrews describes our hope, in Hebrews 6.19, does it make more sense to anchor your soul in something that makes you happy today and is gone tomorrow or in something that is immutable, immovable, eternal, and unshakable? Of course, of course, we would all answer the latter, right? Certainly we understand 
intellectually that it makes far more sense to find our hope in Christ alone rather than in the paper-thin promises of this world, except for the fact that that's exactly what we do. We say our hope is in Christ, but in practice we attach our hope to people and circumstances that make us happy instead of looking to Christ alone as our source of hope. And then when those people and those circumstances fail us, as we all know they will at times in life, just as they failed Jesus, we wonder why we feel so hopeless. Well, it's because the thing we fixed our hope on has abandoned us. Listen, uh, I'm, I'm certain it bothered Jesus, just as it would bother anyone being abandoned by his friends when he needed them the most, but it didn't cause him to lose his hope because those men were not his source of hope to begin with. And I'm telling you, if you're feeling hopeless today, it's not because of Jesus. Because he hasn't abandoned you and he never will. In fact, he said as much, Matthew 28, 20, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Well, guess what? The end of the age hasn't come yet, which means if you're a believer and follower of Christ, he's with you today, he's with you tomorrow, and he's with you every day after that, which means you are never without hope because you are never without Christ. Yeah, pastor, but I'm still struggling with the person I used to be. Join the club. You know what? Jesus is with you. Well, what about when I don't have any idea what I'm supposed to do next with my life? Jesus is with you. Okay, but sometimes I actually, you know, I doubt him and his word. Sometimes my my faith falters desperately. Yeah, Jesus is with you. Well, how about those times when I'm too afraid or simply unwilling to do what's right. You know what? Jesus is with you. Okay, but there are times in my life when everything seems to be, you know, completely falling apart, including my relationship with him. Listen to me. Jesus is with you. He's with you. He is with you. He is with you. How do I know that? Because his disciples were guilty of every single thing on that list and then some. And yet Jesus never abandoned them once. He was always with them just like he is always with you. I'm telling you, once you grasp the fact that Jesus is always with you, even when it feels like everything else that is good in your life has abandoned you, once you accept that he is still there with you no matter what you're going through, your hope will no longer be dependent upon whatever makes you feel happy on any given day. And that is when you will be able to weather the storms of life without sinking into a sea of hopelessness. Because there's nothing in this world that can offer you the hope that is to be found in Christ alone. And if anyone knows that, and I'm sure you're familiar with their story, it's got to be Joni Erickson Tata, who at 18 years old was paralyzed from the shoulders down in a swimming accident. After two years of physical therapy, battling depression, hopelessness, and suicidal thoughts, knowing she would be confined to a wheelchair the rest of her natural life, she found a new hope in Christ one that transcends this world and all of the circumstances in this world combined. And she said this, the best we can hope for in this life is a knothole peak at the shining realities ahead. 
Yet a glimpse is enough. It's enough to convince our hearts that whatever sufferings and sorrows currently assail us aren't worthy of comparison to that which waits over the horizon. Let's finish the story for today. Verse 66 to the end of the chapter. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. The servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. So Peter, who was ready to take on a thousand battle-hardened soldiers with his sword earlier in the evening, is now cowering before a servant girl in the courtyard who is incessantly accusing him of being who he actually is, one of Jesus' disciples. And as her claims become increasingly specific and increasingly aggressive, so too do Peter's responses until the final time when in verse 70, the servant girl who has now rallied others to her cause says, certainly you're one of them, for you are a Galilean. Uh, Matthew's account of this same story says, certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Matthew 26, 73, and I was reading in the, the majority text, it's a Greek a translation of the New Testament based on a massive amount of ancient Greek manuscripts discovered mostly from the Byzantine Empire in the 5th century AD. And in that translation of this verse, the majority text reads, for you are a Galilean and your speech is like a Galilean. And interestingly, in the, the Talmud, the central text of rabbinic Judaism, Galileans are often discussed as having their own distinct dialect. More specifically, the Galileans were unable to distinguish in their speech between several different guttural sounds that were somewhat foundational elements in the Semitic languages. And so it makes sense that Peter couldn't pronounce all of the words like they did. And so it makes sense that they would have recognized Peter as a Galilean, not only by appearance at first, but by his speech as soon as he opens his mouth and starts denying his affiliation with Jesus. And so what started out as a comment about Peter looking like one of Jesus's followers has now turned into a full-blown interrogation. And so just as Jesus is being tried in the courtroom, Peter is being tried in the courtyard. And yet, unlike Jesus, Peter mounts a vigorous defense denying any knowledge of knowing Jesus to the point that he even invokes a curse upon himself. When you, when you read the word deny, in uh, verse 70, in the ancient Greek, it suggests far more than a simple denial. Peter was actually going off on these people in an extended rant. In the Greek, it is both coarse and explicit. Peter was cursing and swearing, but it's even worse than that because as Matthew explains in his account of this same event, Peter was not only cursing and swearing, but as many scholars have also pointed out, Peter was cursing and swearing in God's name by taking an oath. You see, this was not just a simple denial. This was the ultimate denial and quite possibly blasphemy as Peter turns 
on Jesus in the very worst way. And then just as Peter finishes his profane denial of Jesus, Luke tells us that the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him before the rooster crows, today you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Luke 22, 61 and 62. Listen, what Peter did was every bit as evil and condemning as what Judas did. His sin was every bit as bad, and yet through repentance, Peter was restored. His life was redeemed. His calling was confirmed by Jesus himself after the resurrection. And of course, Peter went on to change the world for the sake of Christ and his gospel. It is a breathtaking example of the love of Christ at work in our lives, even when we fail him miserably. You see, Jesus was denied, but his love never failed. Because the source of his love was the Father. Not other people or anything other people could ever do to him. And the question is, can you say the same of yourself? Or is your love for other people contingent upon the way they treat you? Is your love for other people dependent upon their their actions, how well they love you back? Right? Is your love for other people relying upon how they live their lives and, and what they're like? Is your love for other people loaded with conditions? Because, because if it is, and, and you can admit that to yourself, then listen, the source of your love isn't Christ alone. No, it's based upon other people's performance. Now, what if Jesus loved us based on that same criteria? How well would you fare? How much of his love do you deserve? What depth of love have you earned? I don't know about you, but if Jesus decides to love us based on the same criteria most of us use to love others, then I'm in deep trouble. Because I haven't earned it, and I surely don't deserve it. Now here's the profoundly good news. Jesus doesn't love us the way most of us love other people because the source of his love is the Father, not other people or anything other people would ever do to him, which means Christ's love for you is not based on how well you can perform for him. You hear me? You cannot earn his love. You will never deserve his love. And by the way, there is no way you can ever revoke his love for you. He loves you with a love that never fails. You understand, Jesus' life wasn't taken from him. It was given by him. As we've already seen, he could have called down legions of angels from heaven at any moment and put a stop to the false accusations, the denials, the mockery, the beatings, all of it, but he didn't. Why? Surely none of what was happening to him made him happy. Uh, Of course not. It had nothing to do with personal happiness and everything to do with his unfailing love, love for the very people who were betraying him, the very people who were abandoning him, the very people who were denying him. What what people? The disciples, the religious Jews, the Romans, the servant girl in the courtyard, Peter, You and me. 
I'm telling you, this one bit of truth, it will transform your life overnight if you'll let it. Instead of thinking to yourself, oh, once my circumstances change or this, this other person's behavior changes for the better, then my life will be better. Then my faith will be stronger. Then I'll have hope. Then I'll be able to love people the way I want to. In other words, once I'm happy about my circumstances and this other person's behavior in my life, then I'll be satisfied. Then I'll be fulfilled. Which whether we want to admit it or not is exactly how most of us think most of the time. 19th century Scottish evangelist Henry Drummond once said, to become Christ-like is the only thing in the world worth caring for, the thing before which every ambition of man is folly and all lower achievement vain. You see, instead of focusing on what makes us happy, which constantly changes, if you will fix your heart and mind on the faith and the hope and the love that can only be found in Jesus Christ, who never changes, listen, you will discover a new kind of satisfaction, a new kind of fulfillment in your life that is infinitely deeper than the fleeting feelings of happiness that we so often chase after. I'm telling you, it will, it will change your life overnight because what satisfies and fulfills you will no longer be dependent upon circumstances or other people. And what happens is your life almost immediately becomes richer, fuller, because you'll begin to experience a depth of love for people that isn't dependent upon their behavior anymore. And, and you'll experience an unfading hope even in the most difficult circumstances of your life. And you'll experience a faith that doesn't falter even when other people and other circumstances do. You understand? That's the life God wants for you. Far more than he wants you to be happy. He wants you to be whole. And yet there's only one place for that wholeness to be found. It's in Christ alone. Let's pray.